Eduardo Garcia's parents are Mexican immigrants. Probably the last thing they wanted for him was to become a politician. But when he was 12, they took him to work in the fields harvesting crops in Southern California, and it was over 100 degrees where he was working. Eduardo found the work to be too hard, so he knew he had to go to college. Then, when he was 17, he got an internship with his town city council, and he loved it. He decided then and there that he wanted to run for office and fight for access to open spaces. I knew that those individuals sitting up there had a very important job, and it had to do with making things better in our community, and and I wanted to be part of that. I'm Yash Pavlik-Slank, and this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Today, I'll speak with Eduardo Garcia, Assemblyman representing California's 56th district, which includes Coachella and Desert Hot Springs in Southern California. Today, the 44-year-old will tell me why he authored a bill to allocate billions to fight wildfires and climate change, how he plans to make California a center for clean car production, and why he believes that climate policy is sexier than you think. Welcome to Degrees, Eduardo. Thank you for having me. Eduardo, this podcast is for people interested in planet-saving careers. When thinking about that, most people would probably not consider running for office. In fact, research shows that most Americans distrust politicians. Why did you do it? Well, I'll tell you, uh, you gave a brief description of the seed that was planted at a you know, very young age, uh, very grateful to a couple people who pulled us off the streets and said, hey, you interested in a summer job here at City Hall? Not knowing what it would entail. Uh, we we said yes. I and another friend who ironically is the city attorney of, of the same city and several others up and down the state. We jumped on that opportunity to make a few bucks during that hot summer uh, year uh, before going back to uh, our senior year in high school. And Never would have expected to have been so interested in the decision-making process of our local town and really understanding the role and responsibility that uh, individuals who are appointed or elected have in our community. At that moment, I recall connecting dots to those folks that were sitting up on the dais and the things that were important to me as a 17-year-old, which were nice recreational facilities in town, given the history and background of growing up on the baseball, soccer, football fields in town and traveling to other places and always being in awe with other cities, recreational facilities and wondering, well, why don't we have those same type of facilities? And so, you know, I walked away that summer telling people uh, as much as they were telling me I was crazy that I was going to be the mayor of the town. And people said you were crazy. How did that make you feel? You you clearly weren't deterred, but, you know, being accused of being a little unstable or having a wild (laughs) idea that wasn't accomplishable, that might have hit a nerve. Tell me about that. It probably wasn't the first time that I was told I was crazy and it it probably just (laughs) kind of, you know, slipped off my back as it came out uh, out of people's mouth. Uh, What I what I knew was that There were certain things that I needed to accomplish in order to be in a position 
uh, to pursue that idea and uh, and not far-fetching to me, uh, given that, for example, one of the persons that was sitting on the dais at the time was a uh, Little League baseball coach. And there were people like that around me uh, at a very early age that I could look at and say, hey, well, if they did it, I can too. But I also realized that there were a number of steps that I needed to take in order to uh, at least prepare myself. I'll tell you, when I came back from college and I put my name forward, there was a lot of uh, excitement amongst people my age and people older who were wanting to have new blood, new ideas come before the city and propose a vision and a direction that uh, perhaps was different than the one in place. Well, that fits perfectly with my next question. You came back from college and you first ran for city council when you were just 26 years old. And then at 29, you became Coachella's first elected mayor. I think AOC, the congresswoman from New York City, made politics interesting and accessible again for young people. But that didn't happen until later. What were some of the major hurdles that you had to overcome to achieve those milestones at such a young age? Well, look, for me, I'll tell you, going to college was not something on our agenda my junior or senior year in high school. And some of my closest friends were very, very competitive with their education. They were the top five, top 10 students uh, in high school, all preparing to go on to universities, some of the most prestigious universities California has. And I was just kind of cruising along, you know, my senior year, couldn't wait to graduate from high school. And I remember just saying, I'm going to take a break. Um, But I did know uh, that I needed to enroll in the community college for a number of reasons. One, it was a commitment that I had made to myself years past after some experiences in the idea of working in the field. And uh, I was motivated to do something with education, just wasn't sure what. You know, I recall my mother after two or three semesters at the community college asking me, you know, why was it that my friends all went to the university and ended up at the community college? And I had to just be candid and said, I just didn't prepare and didn't uh, work as hard as they did in order to prepare to go on to the university. But at the community college, I was able to at least find what my interest would be within the education realm and and still be home and, and working and, and contributing in other ways. And uh, that, for me, was the best path forward, uh, spending three and a half years at the community college where I learned how to read and write at a level that uh, when I got to the University of California, Riverside, Uh, I was prepared to do the work. I was a little more uh, mature with a good head on our shoulders to uh, do the work and and be successful at it. And I landed at an adult education school teaching English as a second language and some citizenship courses. And it was almost like a perfect place to land and begin uh, rekindling this idea of, of getting involved in public service. You know, you're speaking to a kindred spirit when you tell that story. I, too, took time off after high school before I entered undergrad, and I took time off again after graduate school before I entered the workforce. 
really appreciating that time of having a, a beat to breathe and figure it out and work hard and not like something and change directions and be inspired and have good conversations. I recommend that to every student that I meet if they have the opportunity to do so, even if it means they're working really hard in the meantime. Now, turning back to politics, getting into politics isn't easy, right? How did you raise money, for example, to run for city council at age 26? Well, it's a good question, right? Not having any experience, not having any direct connection. My parents were farm workers. My mother to this day cleans homes in the Coachella Valley. And my father, who's no longer with us, uh, transitioned from farm working to gardening. Uh, you know, they were a tag team duo, my mother and father, my mom would clean the house and then he would end up with a little contract to take care of the exterior of the house, the gardening. Um, my mom tells a funny story and said that that didn't work out for too long. Um, and so she fired him. <laughs> and, uh, he ended up with a job at the city of Indio in the public works department. So you're telling me you didn't have some rich parent or aunt or uncle who had loads of money to fund the stream of yours. You had to figure it out yourself. Yeah, that's exactly what, what I'm, I'm getting to. I, I had to really run a, a straight grassroots campaign to, to where it was friends and family chipping in five bucks, 10 bucks, 25 bucks, having a party at a ranch at a home and serving tacos and nachos and charging for a a red cup of beer or whatnot, right? And so that sounds like uh, a lot more fun than some of the political fundraising events I've been to. I'll tell you, uh, and and it worked out. But there was one council member, uh, and I'll never forget him, Richard McNicky. He was the only council member. He was an older gentleman and the only Anglo council member uh, in town. Ninety-eight percent Latino Mexicano community is uh, city of Coachella. It hasn't. Uh, changed too much, but uh, he was the only council member that was interested in my candidacy. It's funny because he asked to meet with me at a place away from City Hall and away from, you know, uh, where anyone would see us. I'm you know, 26 years old, or, and he asked to meet with me at the Indio Fashion Mall, a very discreet, you know, corner of the mall. And, and he says, hey, I want to help you with your campaign. I want to um, I'll make sure that you're successful and I remember being nervous and very scared uh, of what that all meant. And he pulls out an envelope and it was just like a movie. You know, he pulled out an envelope from his, his coat pocket. I was just like numb, like, oh, my God, what's going on? I looked around to the right, to the left. I said, this is like a movie. I'm being set up. And what he did was is that he had asked a bunch of his close friends and supporters to support this young kid who was running for city council. And in that envelope, uh, it was a personal check from him and his wife. It was a personal check from some of his closest friends and supporters. And I think there were a couple of hundred, uh, if not, you know, over a thousand dollars of checks in that envelope that were addressed to our committee for uh, election. And um, and that was very, very eye-opening uh, in terms of how someone in politics could, you know, just bundle up a little bit of money for someone that they want to support. But number two, uh, to me, besides that uh, action, it was more of the sincereness of Mr. McNicky to wanting to see a younger generation of individuals uh, get into the, the political scene and public service scene here in the, in the city of Coachella. And I'll never forget that. I always tell the story. It was a one white guy <laughs> that wanted to help me. It wasn't the other guys and the gals, the Latinos 
that were on the city council that wanted to see young generation empowerment and uh, create uh, foster leadership. That's an incredible story. And from the corner of a mall and a number of taco inspired or taco catered parties, you advance in your political career and you became a California assemblyman, which is in a lot of other states, a state rep. Uh, And you became that California assemblyman in 2014. Wildfires are the most pressing issue, not only in California, but it's affecting many other states and countries from Hawaii to Greece. What's your plan to fight wildfires in California? Well, look, every year for the last three years, right, we've seen some of the worst fires that have impacted human life and, of course, human property. And what we do know is that we have had record-breaking fires up and down the state of California, uh, some as close as as 150 miles from where we live in the San Bernardino Mountains that have affected the air quality up here uh, significantly. And we already are in a non-attainment part of uh, the region where, just to give you an example, respiratory problems amongst children the statistic is that anywhere between six and seven out of 10 kids suffer from asthma. Oh, so we have those problems that's too that many. Are before us. That's way too many. You know, this year I authored and a measure that transitioned into a budgetary priority with a couple of our colleagues from up and down the state, you know, putting forward close to $3.7 billion over the next few years of climate resiliency investments and a good portion of that going to try to address our forest health and fire safety concerns. Clearly, right now, we are in reaction mode. But, God, we got to get to a place where we're doing some proactive work in trying to prevent the level of degree that we're seeing with these fires. And this is your climate resilience bond. How is it going? We started the conversation as a a climate resiliency bond through to all of our surprise with the budget surplus that we got to see and anticipate will be before us for another year or two. We were able to say we're not going to borrow any money. We're going to use the money that's in front of us that's coming in on real time to make these significant investments. And so what we did was we shifted our funding approach, but our priorities remained quite the same. Looking at the issue of fire, looking at the issue of water infrastructure, looking at uh, the issue of adaptation and building more resilient type of industries within California that tie into the climate conversation. And so for us, this COVID-19 economic situation was somewhat of a, a blessing in disguise to be able to make these investments now versus having to go out and bond money, that would have still required us uh, an election in November and then going out to securitizing those dollars sometime next year. And we're not even in the thick of fire season in California. Two million acres have already burned. That is already exceeding the amount of acreage. So, We got to uh, make sure that we are taking steadfast action with those precious resources that we have uh, before us today. It always kind of floors me to hear the term fire season. I have 
for most of my life, lived in the Midwest. We have four seasons. None of them include fire. So the idea that you are thinking about that in uh, as part of your calendar year, as part of the planning for everyone in your community, really takes my breath away. Speaking of precious natural resources, you're also the chair of Water, Parks, and Wildlife, which means that you oversee management of the state's drought. We hear about this California's drought all the time, every year. It's experiencing the second year of a severe drought right now. And some towns are basically without water. What's your plan to improve water conservation and efficiency to serve the communities that are impacted the most by this scarcity? That is uh, for us one of the you know top priorities, recognizing that even communities in my district in the more rural areas are lacking the infrastructure to be able to provide safe, clean drinking water to some of our essential workers, farm workers that live in mobile home parks outside of kind of the more urbanized centers of our district. Investing into the infrastructure is most critical. And uh, we've seen some great actions taken here by locals, but we're talking about other places in the state that require that similar type of collaboration between water agencies, NGOs, the State Board of California Water. And so we're making some significant investments in those areas as well, where the Climate Resiliency Bond highlighted money for infrastructure. We pivoted and made those same investments with the budget surplus. We're also taking emergency reactionary steps to provide bottled water in these communities that don't have any water. And the right to safe, clean drinking water is something that California declared several years ago and is committed to achieving that goal. We cannot be in a state like California and still have an issue where people don't have safe, clean drinking water. Uh, There is really no excuse and we've got a lot of work to do. But the connection here to climate, the drought, the fires, all kind of a full circle, right, is uh, recognizing that we have a serious crisis with Mother Earth. And the fact is, is that we've got some work to do when it comes to uh, not just building the infrastructure, but the conservation aspect of it is key. For the first time in many, many years, the State Water Board has said, hey, we may have to look at all of these water right agreements from many, many years ago in order to restructure how water is being allocated to certain parts of the Southwest, speaking of the Colorado River and in California, how we actually are moving uh, water to ensure that uh, everyone has access to safe, clean drinking water. In your district, there is a shrinking lake known as the Salton Sea that's potentially one of the world's biggest deposits of lithium. That's a key component to produce batteries for zero emission vehicles, What have the challenges been to develop that? It's been a huge challenge, as huge as the actual lake is, 350 square miles to be specific. But what a blessing it is to identify that an environmental problem could potentially be solved with uh, achieving another environmental goal and objective. And how we do this is by taking advantage of the renewable energy facilities that are already in operation. Those are the geothermal plants that ultimately, as a byproduct, are able to recover the mineral from the brine. So there isn't any uh, open trenching, mining uh, like we can envision or, or imagine in China, Australia, Chile, and other parts of the world where we depend on this mineral for electric vehicle batteries or energy storage or everything and anything that we utilize that uses a lithium component, including these phones and these computers. 
that we may be able to do this in a much more environmentally sound uh, and safe way and turn around the environmental challenges that we have in a region and bring about the co-benefits that we so much talk about when it comes to our climate policies to bring economic opportunities, educational opportunities, and really create what Imperial Valley has been at the forefront of the highest unemployment rates in the country and in the state and turn around those circumstances where the entire supply chain of uh, what lithium contributes to can be established in this part of the state. We have a, a commission here locally. It's the Lithium Valley Commission made up of local stakeholders to be able to tell us if this is going to work, how it can work, and how this will have a direct benefit on the community. I refer to them as shareholders because someone is potentially out to make a lot of money if this does take off. And what I would like to see is the community become a shareholder and see the true direct benefits from this opportunity along with the improvements that could be made to the region and the Salton Sea. It sounds like an exciting plan coming to fruition at the right time, but the Salton Sea and the area around it has been highly polluted for decades. There are very high rates of asthma in the area. Wildlife are born deformed, for instance. You've been there. Can you describe it for us? Yeah, it's not been a pleasant situation for the people uh, who live immediately adjacent to the sea and those who live in the surrounding communities. And, and I live not too far from the Salton Sea, but there are people who live at the Salton Sea and are having to endure those environmental impacts, those air quality issues, the children who just spontaneously have uh, had to deal with nosebleeds on a regular basis and trying to figure out what that is from. And then, of course, just the poor economic circumstances out there, uh, the lack of fresh foods and goods out there, jobs out there, housing. And so we've got some work to do, and we've seen this for decades, and we've heard promises coming from the federal government from past representatives. We've heard promises from the state of California in the past about doing something. And honestly, to this day, the Brown administration, the Gavin uh, Newsom administration is the two entities that have actually moved the needle forward and, and made some investments. And we see a plan getting off the ground. So there's some hope, but there's a lot of skepticism at the same time. California just faced a bitter recall election against Governor Gavin Newsom. He survived, but that campaign left the state divided. How do you recover from it and get everyone behind the climate change policies you need to implement immediately? It was certainly a hard-fought message to defeat this recall. But uh, at the end of the day, Gavin Newsom and Democrats decided to stay the course. They decided that the work that's being done in California on climate, on public health, and how we are investing in homelessness and getting our economy on track so that everyone can benefit was far more important than scratching that off the table and bringing in someone who is anti-global warming or climate change, someone who is anti-public health, 
vaccines, I think, was on the line of being uh, reversed during this pandemic. And so I think the work that we have now in the legislature is to continue to utilize uh, the platform that we've been given uh, to be able to tackle these most pressing issues. You know, when these fires hit certain parts of California, uh, they're not asking whether you're a Republican or Democrat. Uh, when the issue of uh, water and accessibility uh, hits certain communities, it's not selective by voter registration uh, or background. It's coming to us as we had never expected before, uh, but are being told about it now that we have a huge uh, crisis before us. And so we are in a good place and we need to continue to promote those uh, sound policies under the leadership of Gavin Newsom and this legislature. I now have some quick personal questions that we're asking all of our guests and you have to choose one or the other. Are you ready? Yes. Mountain or beach? Beach. Pet or plant? Hey, I have a little girl. <laughs> Six, I have a six-year-old. She's basically yes. a pet, yeah. Power or money? Power. Tell me why. Decision-making power is very, very powerful. And aligning interests and ideas could be just as powerful as money. Well, I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I heard that pause between power or money. Well, tell us one thing that someone listening to this interview right now someone who cares about the same things that you do can do to make a difference? I never thought that going into public service would end up being a career. When I came to realize that it is something that one can do to contribute to the betterment and improvements of conditions in our communities, I kind of got married to the idea and have been doing it since I talk to young people all the time and I encourage young people to look at roles and responsibilities within the public sector. Not all of them need to run for office, but if you're in local government, you need good people in city management. You need good planners to make sure that we're building appropriately and balanced mannered communities. You need a good head on people's shoulders to work in the public safety area, to think about the humanistic side of of people and not just enforcing laws. And so, I mean, there's just a wide array of opportunities. And I want to just encourage young people to, to take a look at those paths and really take on a self-fulfilling opportunity to give to somebody else and make things better for many, many others. Eduardo de Garcia, thank you for being a guest on Degrees. Thank you for inviting us. While you may never have thought of running for office yourself, Keep in mind that there are over half a million elected positions in the United States. Enter your address into the website Run for Office, and you can see which opportunities are available to you. I'll include resources in the show notes because I'm inspired by Eduardo's career journey, and I hope that you are too. In the next episode of Degrees, the percentage of the population that has access to electricity in some countries is still below 50%. Half the population or, or fewer don't have access to electricity. Dan Schnitzer founded a company that's trying to eradicate energy poverty around the world. He'll tell us why he started going to Haiti and Africa in his 20s and how the lack of access to energy 
impacts climate change for all of us. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Amy Morse is our producer. Our executive producers are Rick Valu and Christina Mestre. Podcast Allies is our production company, and I am your host, Yesh Pavlik Slink. The foundation of our show, though, is you. If you found value in today's episode, subscribe and share it with other job hunters. And as always, stay fired up, y'all. Change is coming, oh yeah. Hey.